Who is Jesus? What is he doing? And what does it mean to follow him in the world today? My name is Matt Lewis. This is the Follower Podcast, and everyone is invited to the conversation. So we're in the series called Hope Jesus. Uh, That really is uh, the kind of heart of what we want to communicate. Little tagline is why an ancient death means present life for all people in all places at all times. Um, And what we're going to be looking at over these next three days are, are really three areas. Today we're going to be looking at the Christ, the idea of the Christ. Tomorrow we'll be looking about at the cross and the tomb. And um <clears throat> then on Thursday, we'll be looking at the table uh, and, and we'll be tying baptism into the table in terms of an entrance point into the way of Jesus and then how the table anchors us around the way of Jesus, what that means for our lives. So that's kind of a projection of where we're going. But where we want to start today, by the way, if you have the workbooks, we're fully into that now. We're already on start where you are. Um, if you want to, as we start this series... The real question we're asking here is, uh, what is the gospel? And, and that might seem like a simple question, particularly if you're a Christian person. You may think, yeah, of course, I know what the gospel is. If you're not a Christian person, when Christian people talk about the gospel, what they're really talking about is the central story or message that builds the foundation of the Christian faith. In other words, if the Christian If the Christian movement, if Christian people are on this planet to communicate a message, right, in thought, in word, and in deed, then what the gospel is, the gospel is the core of that message. It is is really the substance, it's the ground zero of that message. Now, uh, it is my contention that over time we have... Uh, not necessarily got the gospel wrong, but but we have oversimplified the gospel. And in the process, we've lost part of its power and potency. Let me also say, before we get into all this, I am not a theologian. I I don't classify myself as a a theologian. I know my limits and my ceiling and where I kind of work in the body and the big family that is Christianity. So I don't see myself as a theologian. If anything, I'm more of a a missiologist, but actually probably more of a, a contemplative, creative story writer, storyteller, right? And my deep conviction is that I am here on this planet to tell the story of Jesus. That's what it is. And so I'm not like some kind of super huge professional guy who knows a bunch of stuff. I read books by people who know a bunch of things uh, in order to figure things out. And the reason that I'm doing that is because I feel like there's always got to be this tension, right, between our theology, the ideas we have in our head. That word theology, if you're not familiar with it, theology, right? So, or theo, yeah, the study of theos, God. So theology is a kind of map in our minds that gives us a a way to relate to our creator and then praxis what we actually do on the ground in terms of what it means to live in the in the world as a christian person and i think there needs to always be this conversation that's happening between theology and praxis and some people would call it theopraxis right this idea of these two worlds coming together and one speaking to the other one and this one speaking to that one because otherwise what ends up happening is when these things get pulled apart we have people doing a whole bunch of things that are not aligned with the truth of our ideas. And although they may be having effect, they are not really true in and of themselves. They're not anchored in eternal reality. On the other hand, we can have, we can have surgically accurate theology that doesn't work in the real world. And so you have a bunch of people writing a lot of books arguing about sort of the root meaning of specific words, which it matters, But it's also the question is, okay, but how does that translate to the person on the ground who's trying to live their life? And so it's not that I'm not interested in in theological accuracy. I am, but I don't feel like I'm a leader in that space. Uh, You will hear me over over the course of this period quoting a lot of people, specifically guys like N.T. Wright um, and C.S. Lewis and these kinds of people. These are theologians. I simply steal their ideas (laughs) in order to make sense of my practice. But does that that make sense? So what what I'm really more interested in is is potent practice. 
How do the ideas of theology translate into our lives so that my life and your life actually looks like the life of Jesus going forward? And so that's, that would just be where, what I would say, and then we'll, we'll get into it now. Um, I, I'm not an expert. I, there's so much I don't know. What I'm offering you is the stuff I've sort of collected over years of trying to figure out how to be a Christian in the world today. And that's part of my own frustrations. It's part of my own failures and in some ways successes. But, but I'm not uh, like some kind of super spiritual dude. I'm just a guy who's trying to love Jesus in the world. And I hope that's encouraging for you because um, I think that you can love Jesus in the world as well. Right. Cool. So we're asking the question, what is the gospel? In other words, what is the central message that underlies uh, everything that Christianity is all about? What's the story that we're here to tell? I see myself as someone who's here to tell the story. So what is that story? And the question, of course, is why does this matter? And I would say to you, at this time in the world, when we are facing what we're facing, we're in the midst of an incredible opportunity when I would say more than ever in recent history, we have to think carefully about the story that gives life to our faith. Because whatever that story is, is going to determine what we do next. Okay, so um, when you speak to a lot of Christian people, and you hear the, the and you ask them what is the gospel? You're going to get uh, kind of one of two tensions. The one, okay, I've got a little whiteboard. Look how official all this is. All right, if if this is Earth, if, if this is the world, right? Uh, one of the the ways of seeing the gospel is what's called um, evacuation, right? Evacuation. You can see that word there, evacuation. In other words, this is earth, and our job as Christian people is to get out of earth and then go somewhere else, and the somewhere else we're going has little baby angels uh, with wings and chocolate rivers and giant Xbox walls, okay? And so so we, we, our job is to leave this planet and go somewhere else. And so when you speak to a lot of Christian people and you ask them what is the gospel, a lot of the time this is what they'll say. Hey, Tim, say, Dave, good to see you guys. They'll say something like this. Um, and again, this isn't my idea. I stole this from a guy who called Tim Mackey. Now, he's a theologian, okay? So we're born, we live, and we die, okay? That's your line. You're born, you live, you die. Um, at some point in this timeline, you have to make a decision, okay? You make a decision to believe in Jesus. So someone does an altar call or something like that, and I'm not, I'm not trashing anybody. We need all the altar calls we can have. People need to come to faith. You'll see as we go into it, I'm about it. We should cross the line of faith. Amen to all that. But here's, this is where this breaks down. So we make it about the singular decision somewhere in our life, and then based on this decision, a lot of people think, then when you die, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. Okay, so you're born you live, you die. Based on this decision you made over here, you now either do or don't have an eternal insurance policy to go to heaven, the good place, or to go to hell, the bad place. Okay. So this is, when you say to people, what's the gospel? Or what's the Christian message? Most people think this. They think in terms of evacuation. Heaven is somewhere else. Jesus came to save our spirit because uh, what, that's what really matters. We're some kind of Casper the Friendly Ghost. And I'm not being cynical. It's just funny, right? Uh, and then when we die, we go somewhere else when we die. And whether or not we believed in Jesus and joined the Christian club, uh, we will either be able to go to the good place or the bad place. And you might be looking at this and saying to yourself, that kind of is what I believe, actually. That's kind of what I believe. See, the problem with the story is, and this is to Mackie's words, the only problem with the story is the Bible. <laughs> Love that, right? Uh, the only problem with the story is the Bible. You're not going to find the story in the Bible because this is not the story of the Bible. The other problem with this story, particularly at the moment in the world today, is that people are looking for hope. People are looking for, people are desperate for hope. If, you, if you're not aware of that, then you just need to kind of pay attention, right? People are desperate for hope. And if the best story I can give people is this story, this is not a very compelling story. There's not a whole lot of hope here. So in the, in the midst of COVID-19, if the best story I can give to someone is, hey, listen, just pray a prayer with me and then just hold on until you die. 
and then 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 when you die you'll go somewhere else that's nice man what what does that do what, what that does is what it's always done throughout the generations is it pacifies the church and it pacifies people who believe in Jesus. It develops in us a kind of waiting room spirituality where we, and N.T. Wright talks a lot about this, how this way of thinking about the gospel is platonic in its nature. In other words, it's borrowing philosophical ideas from a guy called Plato, and Plato believed, along with a, an ideology called Gnosticism, in the strong separation of the flesh and the spirit, of the body and the spirit. And so what ends up happening is we end up prioritizing some kind of ethereal sense of our spirituality, and we have no interest in actually investing in the world right now in front of us. And, and that's a problem because people need real hope for a real situation in their real lives right now. What they don't need is pie in the sky, escapist spirituality that anesthetizes them for a moment but gives them no purpose going forward. Does, do you see what I mean? Viktor Frankl, oh, where did I put that quote? I was reading this morning. Listen to this quote by, by Viktor Frankl. He was a guy who was in the, the Jewish concentration camps. Listen to this. He says, man, this is his observation in the, Jewish con in the concentration camps during World War II. He says, man cannot exist without the quest for purpose and meaning. And so right now, in the midst of what we're facing, people are looking for hope, but that hope is attached to purpose and meaning. There's a reason you're alive on this planet, and it's not just to wait around till you die and then go be with Jesus. That is not the gospel. Do, do you understand? If you're with me, if you're tracking, uh, put a thumbs up, put a fire or something, do, do something, do something. Just want to make sure everyone's with me. I'm going to have a sip of water while we do that. Hi, and welcome, Susan Schumann. Good to see you for the second time today. Leroy, yo, everyone's doing good. Ashley, ew, what legends are on this place? Danny Jones, my guys. Okay, so we're tracking. Everyone good? Blaine Tyler, there's a, there's a lion happening. I don't know what the lion means. I'm going to assume it's a good thing. So, uh, and then we've got a lot of little hearts floating up here on the side screen. Okay, so we're all tracking. So if that's not the gospel, then what is the gospel? Okay, um, Here's what the word gospel actually means. Uh, this might be helpful for you. Uh, the word gospel is a, an old English word uh, that comes from the word God's spell, from God or good and spell news um, uh, or a story. So that word spell means news or a story. And it's uh, translated from Latin meaning bona anatutiata, a word I can't explain, um, and this comes from a word evangelium, which is uh, to which also means the good news, and so was shortened. So all that to say, Greek translating into English, essentially meaning good news. Okay, and what is the good news? What what is the good news that we're talking about? For us to understand that, I want us to go to one Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse three to four. Now, the reason I go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 4, is because when we're trying to figure out what the gospel actually is, I have found that it really matters where you start. And where you need to start is in the beginning. Okay, not You don't want to jump in somewhere in the middle, because otherwise you might read a bunch of things into this thing that it's not saying. Right? And so why do we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, particularly focusing right now for the sake of time on verse 3 to 4? Because this is what we call the original apostolic gospel. So a little bit of history here. This is some of the earliest writings that we have uh, of what the gospel actually was. This is some of the first stuff in the New Testament. And I'm going to read it to you and then I'm going to pull out a few things. Okay, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And he says this, I pass unto you what was most important. Okay, very, very, very important language there. I've passed unto you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Stop for a second. In other words, Paul is saying that he has received something from other people. And he is now passing this thing on to other people. And this thing that he received and is now passing on is the thing that's most important. Okay, the original apostolic gospel, the very first core message of the early church. And then he goes on to describe what this thing is. 
he says, this is, this is the core message, that Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Here's what's fascinating about this original text. It's not about you. <laughs> it's about Jesus, right? The original gospel, the fancy language for it, the original gospel is a Christology. Okay, It's a declaration about who Jesus is. The original gospel does not start with this language. You are a sinner. Okay, And if you don't believe in Jesus, then you will go to hell. But if you do believe in Jesus, then you will go to heaven. That God has a plan for your life. And if you put your faith in Jesus, then you can have a great life. Where's the emphasis in that kind of gospel? The emphasis is on you. And this is actually a product of a hedonistic society and, and, a, and a humanistic society that's made things all about us. Now, here's what I'm not saying. The gospel does have stuff to do with you and specifically and powerfully your sins. We even see that there, that Christ died for our sins. So that is involved. But primarily, the gospel is about Jesus. And what is this good news that is all about Jesus? It is primarily three things. That this Christ, notice the language there, died for our sins. And then very importantly, just as the scriptures said. And that this Christ was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Now, at this point, you might ask the question, why is that good news? And that would be an excellent question to ask, right? Because at that moment, just standing here in COVID-19, in the midst of a crazy world that's falling apart, uh, struggling, uh, awakening to a whole bunch of broken things, Kales, you're wonderful, welcome. Um, you're dealing with all these things and you're asking yourself, okay, why does that bring hope? And, and unless we start to understand the context of what this thing is saying, we won't understand why it brings hope. And then our temptation is to shrink it down to just me and my story so that it's applicable to my life instead of expanding it open to Jesus and the whole universe so that I can find my part in his big story. And this is what we've notoriously done for a very long time. We've taken a story that's all about Jesus and what we'll see, Jesus as king of the universe, <laughs> right? And because, we, because we're brought up in a mindset that says, if it matters, it has to matter to me and it has to be about my little world. What we've done is we've shrunken that down and we've said things like, if you were the last person in the whole world, Jesus would still just die for you and your sin, which is not necessarily untrue, but it's not the primary point. That is a result of the gospel, but the primary issue of the gospel is Christ and what Christ has achieved, not just for you and for me, but for the whole universe, for everything that's ever created in the heavenlies, in the, in the seen and the unseen, in heaven and earth and on the earth and under the earth. It's a much bigger story than just me and my little personal Jesus. Does that make sense? If you're tracking with me, give me a thumbs up. Julia, welcome. Give me a thumbs up. Give me some fire. Give me some something. I'm going to have some more water because I'm using a lot of words right now. We're good. Blaine's tracking. Anybody else tracking? Okay. Anybody else tracking? Anybody got fire? Give me some hearts. Let's have some streams. Gabs is bringing some fire. Yo, well done, Gabs. No, yeah, Julia. Tums is bringing the fire. Good stuff. Good stuff. Ginger bassist. I think you just arrived. Everybody else. Okay, we're still on track. That's good. So, if we want to figure out why it actually matters... Uh, this original gospel, uh, one of the first things we have to figure out is who is the Christ, okay? Who is the Christ? Because it's the Christ that did the dying. It, and here's, we're going to say this again and again and again, right? The issue is, is not that someone died. The issue is who did the dying, okay? Because many people were crucified. Many, 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 many people were crucified, 
right? The issue is not that someone was crucified. The issue was who was crucified. And the reason it's good news is because of who did the living and who did the dying. And his name is Jesus the Christ. But we've got to figure out who that Christ is. So here we go. Often when you think about the name Jesus, we think about the name Jesus Christ in the same category as we think about the name Brad Pitt. Okay. <laughs> we think about Jesus Christ in the same category as we think about the name Justin Bieber. We think Jesus was his first name. Christ was his surname. That's his vibe. Okay. And uh, that's not really what's going on at all in the Bible. Okay. Because the name of Jesus is, is less Brad Pitt. It's more an insight to and a descriptor of his function in the world. Okay, so here we go. Luke chapter 1, verse 30 to 33. It's there in your workbooks if you have it. If you don't, smash out a Bible. Jacques, you wonderful Afrikaans human from Durban. Welcome. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 30 to 33. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to pull out a few things just to think about here. Judy Rose Shaw, you're wonderful from Ireland. Um, here it is. Luke chapter 1, 30 to 33. It says this. Uh, so let me give you some context. Uh, an angel has appeared to Mary. And this angel is telling Mary about the boy she's about to have. All right, we'll get into some context around this a little bit later, but that's just basically what's happening. And this angel says to Mary, he says this, he says, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. And he will be very great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him, oof, the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. Okay, so here's the first question is, who gave Jesus his name, and what does that name mean? And the second question is, what will this Jesus do? So the answer to the first question is that an angel gave Jesus his name. Mary didn't look through a baby names book and go, oh, I think Jesus is a nice name and pick it up. No, no, no. This was a divinely given name because it was a divinely given mandate. Okay. So, so Jesus' name is aligned with his function, which is why he's named of eternity and not named of the temporary right? And what does that name, what will this Jesus actually do? What just this Jesus will actually do? It says here, this Jesus will be very great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give this Jesus the throne of his ancestor, David, and he will reign over Israel forever and his kingdom will never end. And the name Jesus actually means this is derived from a Greek word that I can't pronounce, lesois, something like that, which is basically a Hebrew name uh, for the name Yeshua. And that name Yeshua means salvation or God saves or rescuer or savior. So let me reframe it for you. An angel pitches up to Mary and says to her, you're going to have a son. His kingdom is never going to end. He's going to rule and reign. And his name will be called the salvation of God. Okay, let's carry on. Let's talk about the second title that's given to Jesus, the Christ. Who is Jesus the Christ and why this matters? Okay, so the first name Jesus, given from, from eternity, meaning the salvation of God. Then we're now in Matthew 16, 13 to 18. Listen to this. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he questioned his disciples. So he's sitting down with the disciples. A lot of stuff's starting to heat up. He's aware of where this is all going. And he wants to figure out, do they know who I am yet? Okay. And so he's asking his disciples, he says, who do people say the son of man is? Stop there for a second. Of all the titles that are used to describe Jesus, the one that Jesus uses most to describe himself is the Son of Man. And we'll figure out why that is so important in just a second. So he asked them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And Jesus replies, uh, and they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked them, but what about you? Uh, who do you say that I am? Which is really the question that Jesus asks all of us, right? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, okay? You're not Christ. You're not Brad Pitt. You're not Justin Bieber. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Can you see an echo of how the name Jesus is given from eternity and the title Christ is given from eternity and then is applied to the person of Jesus because his, his function is tied up in his name, right? Um, and I tell you, Jesus says, that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. What does Peter call Jesus? He calls him the Christ. And what does that word Christ mean? Without getting into all the etymology, it really simply means the anointed one or the Messiah. So let me break down what the name of Jesus <laughs> means for you okay it means given from above to the person of Jesus it means the salvation of God through the anointed one that's what the name of Jesus means okay uh, and this was revealed to Simon Peter by God now the question is what does Jesus call himself and what does this mean Jesus calls himself the son of man, as we've said. Now, if you go back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, I'm not going to get into it now because of time, but do it in your own reading. Daniel is in Babylonian captivity, and he has a vision of a one that he calls the son of man, okay? And this son of man is, the, the son of man's function in Daniel's vision is not to give people a prayer that they can pray so they can go to heaven one day. That's not what, Jesus, what Daniel sees. What Daniel sees when he sees the Son of Man is a ruling, reigning king whose kingdom will never, ever end. Can you see the echoes from what the angel has said? Right. Uh, that's why Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And why is this significant for the church? Because what Jesus goes on to say to Peter, and there's different ways of interpreting this. Uh, I get that. I get that there's tension. I am aligning myself with the perspective that says that Jesus says that it is this revelation, uh, the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of man, that he's this coming Messiah. It is this revelation on which the church of Jesus Christ will be built. So in other words, unless we understand both what the Christ is and who the Christ is, we are building our church on shaky ground. Does that make sense? If you're with me, give me a high five or some fire or some, yes, Matt, this is helping uh, Let's go, let's go, let's go. Give me some hearts. Give me some things. Any questions? Want to smash some questions in there? Hi, Kirsty Weaver. Welcome. Uh, good. I don't want to wait too long because I'm aware of time. If we're still tracking, give me a high five. Give me a hands up. Give me a something, people. Let me know you're out there. I've got one heart from someone. Uh, anybody else? Anybody else? Oh, I got one thumbs up from Kaylee Rogers. That's a vibe. Any other thumb? Oh, we got lots of fire happening from, oh, even more fire. All the fire. Lots of hearts, lots of affection. Merle is bringing the fire. Okay. We're still helping each other. Chloe Snyder, Susan Schoolman, hands are in the air. Stuff's going on. Blaine Tyler's with it. Okay, we're good. Now we know we're all alive. So, we want to figure out now who the Christ was, okay? So we understand the name. What is it pointing to historically? So <clears throat> uh, let, me, let me erase something real quick and then we'll get into this, okay? I've got my little whiteboard. Look, I'm such a good teacher. Okay, so we said this is not the gospel. Just to recap, that's, that's nonsense. Uh, if you believe that, stop believing that. Oh, no, this doesn't erase. I used the wrong one. Okay, we'll use a little corner here. Okay, um, You are here. You are here. Okay? That's, well, actually, you are, you are here. You are here. That, that's your little life, that little dot there. Can you see it? You are here. That's your little life. Okay? If you want to figure out what it means to be Christian and who Jesus is, you can't try and squash him down to the smallness of your story. What you have to do is you have to zoom out and you have to get into the bigness of his eternal story. Because in the beginning... He was around, and in the end, he's doing something. And you and I, we're around for a short little period of time, and even the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which happened over here, that falls into a bigger context, his big story. So if you had to say to me, Matt, what is the gospel? 
in one word, the gospel is Jesus. And then you would say to me, okay, but who is Jesus? And I would say to you, well, now we got to go read the gospels. And you would say, which parts of the gospels? And I would say, all of them. <laughs> and you would say, but I can't fit that into five steps. And I'd say, yeah, but the point was never to fit it into five steps. See, the, the point of the gospel was never to fit it into some kind of vacuum packed, tight little package that you could just export out easy, easy, easy. Part of the genius of the gospel is that it forces engagement. It invites you into, inv uh, um, into relationship, into engagement. You have to, uh, the gospel doesn't give up its secrets easily, right? You've got to engage with it. You've got to dig into it. You've got to get, you got to get in there, right? And one of the mistakes we make is when we buy into a consumeristic quick fix psychology and we take the eternal mystery of the gospel and turn it into three points in a poem and then give it to people, say, take two of these in the morning and go home. Because that doesn't force engagement. All that that calls people to do is to memorize a few ideas and then get on with their lives. Make sense? So if you want to know who the God, what the gospel is, the gospel is Jesus. If you want to know who Jesus is, you've got to go read all the gospels. Well, actually, the one gospel from four angles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John being four stories, four tellings of the same good news, the gospel. But if you want to really understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've got to read the whole story. You've got to understand what they are talking about and why it fits into the story. So that's why you, until we understand the big picture, the story of Israel, it's very hard for us to understand why it's good news that the Christ died and on the third day rose again. And why that's been such good news for 2,000 years that's changing the whole world. And part of the problem is most of us have adapted uh, or adopted a kind of Christianity that's shrunken down to the smallness of our own world rather than expanded to the bigness of his whole story. Does that make sense? And so, um, <laughs> Andre Brains, you are beautiful. Dr. Dre, this man's wonderful. Um, and all the fire, I'm loving all the fire and waves and waves and waves to everybody. Cool. So what we're going to do right now for the rest of this session is we're going to try and trace the name Christ and what this means for us as Christian people. Okay, and again, let me tell you this, we're going to do a, a 30,000 feet high flyover just because to go into depth with this, we will be here for hours and I'm very aware of time. Uh, let me just double check. So we're already at quarter to two. Okay, so we've got 15 minutes <laughs> to try and get through this. What I'm trying to get you to do is to, how would I put this simply? Tony Campolo says this beautiful thought. He says, uh, God makes man in his image and then man returns the favor. We are all guilty of creating a Jesus in our own image. All of us. My hand is up. And if you're honest with yourself, you should be putting your hand up right now. Okay. All of us worship the Jesus of our preference in so many ways. God's not surprised by this. That's okay. He meets us in our, in, in our limited understanding. And let me also say this, when I speak to people about this stuff and when I start doing these kinds of teachings, people start to get a bit heavy instead of getting excited because what they start to say is they start to say, well, how much of this do I need to understand to be saved? Okay. And I have two responses to that. Number one, I'm hoping by the end of this three days, you'll have a new understanding or a new perspective on what, on what you think it means to be saved. That's the first thing. But then the second thing I would say, and this I'm stealing from a guy called N.T. Wright again. He says this, when, when people ask him that, because that's how I feel. When I listen to N.T. Wright, I just feel like I've never read my Bible in my whole life. That's how I feel. Um, and so he says, people will often ask him the same question. And his response is actually to say, you know, the reality is you have to understand very little of this. Uh, you need to know something about the love of God. You need to know something about the unique and essential nature of Jesus. Somehow by this power of the Holy Spirit, you need to put your faith in this Jesus. And, and, and that is, we, we don't want to stray away from the doctrine of justification by faith alone and work towards some kind of works righteousness where you've got to have a head full of knowledge in order to have a relationship with God. Because then salvation is based on your intellect and we would never want, that's heresy. We don't want to go down that road. So what I'm not saying is that you need to, you need to become some kind of academic scholar to enter into the beautiful gift, the life and life to the full that Jesus offers. What I am saying, though, is if you're here listening to this, it means that the Spirit of God is stirring you to more. 
He's stirring you to more, right? So the, the entranceway is always grace. And Jesus comes and finds us. If, if God played hide and seek with you, you never find him, right? So the reason that you know God at all or that you're currently searching for God is because God is currently reaching out to you. That's the reality, okay? And so we enter by grace. Praise God for that. But at the same time, for those of us who have both the desire because he causes us to will and to do, and then he also gives us the capacity to respond, what a great privilege and a great journey to go deeper into our revelation of what it actually means to know Jesus and to be Christian on this planet, right? And that's all I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do. So I hope that's good. If that's tracking with you, thumbs up. Thumbs up, high fives, fire, whoop whoops, and amens. If not, if you're going, that's heresy. I don't back any of what you're saying. You're also welcome to, to do that. And you can even pop us a question over there in the little question block. And uh, we'll get around to that as well. I love all the hearts. That's very nice. It's also colorful. Okay, so we're back. And what we're doing now is we are tracking the idea of the Christ through the whole big story. So we're zooming out. And we're saying there's this moment where Jesus is saying the whole church is built on the revelation of the fact that Jesus is the Christ. But then we've got to ask ourselves, who is the Christ? And if we ask ourselves who the Christ is, we've got to backtrack, 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 backtrack. And we've got to backtrack actually all the way to the beginning. Hallelujah. Whoop, whoop. Fires, thumbs up. I back you. I back you, Dr. Dre. You're the beautiful. Okay, PV. I don't know what PV means, uh, YM Durban, but amen. All right, so we want to backtrack to try and figure out who this Christ is. What was the expectation? Here's, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get us into the mind of the original audience so that we can hear what they were hearing when Jesus showed up, right? So imagine, imagine this for a second before we go here. This is helpful. Imagine you're a first century Palestinian Jewish kid. And imagine you're sitting around the fireside and your whole life growing up, you've been hearing stories of this Yahweh who led Israel out of captivity in Egypt, who led them through the desert, who made this agreement with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did all these things. Imagine what your expectation would be for that Messiah, that through, you had this idea because you'd been told many, many times that through this Christ, this anointed one, this Messiah, God was going to do something. Okay, imagine that. Then imagine some dude from Nazareth pitches up and he starts saying things like, repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand, right? Believe the good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. Would your first thought be, oh wow, what he's saying is that I need to pray a prayer so I can go to heaven one day when I die. I don't think that's what you would be thinking. I think if you were that kid, who got brought up in that culture, expecting that kind of Messiah, when someone shows up and starts talking about the kingdom of God, I think you have a very different kind of excitement bubbling up inside of you, particularly because when the someone shows up and starts talking about the kingdom of God, you are currently under Roman occupation and oppression. Okay, so what you're not thinking is, oh man, I should put my hand up in the air and pray a prayer. And then in 20 years time, when someone says to me, am I Christian? I'll say, yes, I am because I prayed a prayer 20 years ago. And then one day when I die, I'll go be on a cloud somewhere with the baby angels. Okay, <laughs> that's ugly. Okay, I'm not, I'm not mocking anything. I'm just saying, I don't think that's what the original audience was thinking. I don't think that's what they were hearing. What were they hearing? Let's go to the story. Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15 is where we want to start. Why do I go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? Because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we get the very first hint of who the Messiah will be. All right. Um, just to give you a little bit of context here, and we're going to talk about this more tomorrow when we talk about the cross and the resurrection. But Genesis, man, if you want to understand the story, you've got to go to the garden. Because as a good friend of mine, Ian Gosnell says, he says that the whole big picture story of the Bible is a story from hope to hope. Right. And and in the garden, we often get we get all caught up in is it seven days or six days and whether they're a tree and an elephant or a, a rooster and a, whatever the thing is. We start arguing about all that stuff. And I'm not saying that's completely unimportant. I'm just saying I don't think Genesis exists exists to answer those questions of how. I think Genesis exists to answer the questions of of what it means to be human. 
who God is, the original intention and purpose of our relationship with him. When we understand that that's our blueprint, that there's a, there's a garden and there's a city. Thank you, John Mark Comer, for your book. There's a garden and there's a city. And that there's a blueprint and there's a blueprint that God is busy building us toward. We start to understand the purpose of the Christ, okay? And so there was this beautiful garden relationship, intimacy. We'll talk about all that stuff. Uh, something happens. This issue of sin happens. Uh, and there's introduced into the story the Satan, a deceiver. And if you don't know the story, which I'm sure you do, Adam and Eve uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Satan uh, introduces this lie that bends Eve out of shape and bends Adam out of shape, which leads them to break the contract that they had with God, which then results in the sin, meaning that they now are missing the mark of what it means to be human. And so they are then separated from their intended purpose. And then there's this conversation that God has with the serpent and with Eve. And here's where we pick it up. He's talking to... Um, the serpent, the Satan. And he says this about the Satan. He says, I will put enmity, anger, aggression between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, not they. Listen to that. He's just said, I'm going to put enmity, aggression between your offspring and her offspring. And then he doesn't say they, as in all the offspring. He says he, as in a specific one of these offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When Jesus dies on the cross, there's a serpent that bruises his heel. But in the bruising of the heel, this Messiah crushes the serpent's head. You're welcome. If you love that, give me some fireworks or something. Even before we, we knew his name, even before, we, before the book tells us about him, right there in the beginning, we see the intention of the Father to point us be, be, to one who would come and crush the serpent, even as the serpent struck him. Okay, so we see it right there. There's an echo. In other words, there's an expectation that's building. But now let's talk about these descendants that lead to the descendant. Okay, so there's a covenant that God has with Noah. Uh, if you don't know all about this stuff, uh, there's a flood that comes and there's a warning. There's a warning that there's judgment coming, but there is salvation in the midst of the judgment. In other words, if you get in the ark, your life will be saved. If you resist God's mercy and grace, then you will have to pay the, the consequence. You'll have to deal with the consequence of your own free will. Does that sound like something else? <laughs> I think it does. Anyway, so there's this there's this um, this contract that's made. There's this agreement that's made uh, between God and Noah, and it says this. It says then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. I love that after the results of man's rebellion, Noah's first response in in response to salvation is worship. He draws near to God, and as he draws near to God, God draws near to him. Beautiful. Um, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of Noah's worship, uh, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so what God does is he makes a covenant with Noah. He says, uh, I see that this has happened. I'm now making a covenant that I'm not going to do this again. And then through you, my plan's going to continue going to another one of God's descendants, which is a guy called Abraham. All right. So we've started with this very first expectation when he would crush the heel, even as it struck his head. Then we have the consequence of sin, but in the midst of that, the opportunity for a salvation. And we have an agreement from God that he's not going to wipe everything out again, but he's going to seek to draw near. You could see throughout the whole story as we build it that God is always pursuing humanity, always pursuing humanity, always pursuing humanity. He's a really, really, really good God. Damn, it is good, right? Um, the call of Abraham. Abraham being one of the descendants that lead to the descendant, right? <clears throat> now the Lord said to Abraham, let me get a sip of water. I'm loving all this stuff, all the weeping and fire. 
<clears throat> Let's just check time here. Okay, we've got to speed up a bit. Here we go. Hold on, we're going to get a little bit faster. <clears throat> now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Um, by the way, this is in Genesis uh, uh, chapter 12, I think. Hold on, let me check it for you. Just to make sure. Yeah, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Here we are. Uh, go to your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed which families of the earth all the families of the earth even the South African families Okay, so in other words, God's making a covenant with this dude, Abraham, who's one of the descendants that leads to the descendant. And he's saying that through you, I'm going to make an agreement. I'm going to build a people through you, Abraham. Uh, and through this people, I will bring blessing to the whole world. Okay, from the line of Abraham. Really, really powerful. Carries on. Then there is this blessing that comes uh, from Jacob to his son Judah. Now, if you don't know Jacob, he's the guy who wrestles, okay, um, <clears throat> and gets the name Israel, which means one who wrestles with God, uh, the nation of Israel, right? And he gets the name Israel. But anyway, he's blessing all his kids, and he blesses. This is going to come in really, really important in just a second. He blesses his sons. He's going through the list, and he's giving blessings away, and he's being pretty mean to some of his sons. I'm like, yo, just chill out a bit there, Jacob. But one of his sons, Judah, um, I know, right? We're trying to keep it fast here. One of his sons, Judah, he gives a special blessing to. And he says this, he says, this scepter, this symbol of governance, authority, government, kingdom that never ends maybe, okay? This shall never depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In other words, Jacob's blessing his sons. And then he says to, the, to Judah and the tribe of Judah, I'm giving you the scepter of the kingdom. Okay, so let's track Genesis, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Judah. Okay, carries on. Now we're in Samuel, okay, chapter 2, uh, verse 7, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 12 to 13. Here's where we go. It says this, um, and this is David speaking now. Uh, well, it's, it's God speaking to David through the prophet Nathan. Okay, so here we go. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Can you see this common thread? Kingdom, rulership, blessing, authority. When? Not later. Now. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish, I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How? Forever. Judah, I'm giving you from your tribe, I'm giving the scepter of governance. Through Judah leading to David, David, one's coming from your lineage and he's going to be the king over all things and his kingdom is going to rule and reign forever. Okay, carries on. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 to 7, listen carefully, it says this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. What's he talking about? A kingdom. And how long will this kingdom reign? Forever. And what's this one that's coming through this line of David? He's going to be a mighty counselor. He's going to be a wonderful counselor. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Then we get to the prophet Malachi. Now, here's what's really, really important. Malachi is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Well, second last, because there's a guy called John the Baptist, which you're going to hear about in a second. But here's what Malachi says. Uh, he says, we're in chapter 2. Uh, you have wearied the Lord with all your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? Hear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Chapter 4, Malachi. 
For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogance and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither uh, root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike down the land with the decree of utter destruction. Malachi, last prophet, well, second last Old Testament prophet, and we'll see that John is the last Old Testament prophet before Jesus. Malachi happens. There's this warning that there's a day of judgment coming. That the, Hey, Dino, good to see you. Uh, we're on round two here. <clears throat> there's this day of judgment coming, that there's a son who's going to be risen up, that he's going to gather the, the sheep in the pen. Now, there's this powerful analogy that's going on here. Because uh, what he's referring to is an Elijah. Listen, there's a language there. An Elijah who prepares the way. And as this Elijah prepares the way, he, what comes after the Elijah is this anointed one who's been promised since Genesis all the way through. Can you see? And this anointed one is coming to bring a new kingdom that's going to silence every other kingdom and then push forward the eternal kingdom of God. You, you're starting to get the picture um, <laughs> okay, you with me? <clears throat> so, after Malachi, there's 400 years of silence. 400 years. So think about that. There's this expectation. There's this growing expectation of this Messiah that's coming. Speaking, prophets, words, God, interacting. 400 years, silence, nothing. Think about that. You're, there's a generation that passes and then another, another generation and then another generation and then another generation that passes from the promise of this coming one to anything. And by now, people are kind of like, uh, we heard the stories. Apparently, there was this Messiah coming. But where is he? It's the guy. Where is where, this anointed one? We haven't seen him. There was one that was going to gather all the people of Israel like sheep in a pen and then open up the doors and then we were going to forcefully advance into the kingdom. Where, where is this Messiah? Right? 400 years. And then, this is why it's so exciting what we read about in the Gospels because there is this busting out from 400 years of silence. There is this busting out and all of a sudden we learn about uh, John, right, who is he's given to Zechariah and Elizabeth and he's the cousin of Jesus and all of a sudden there's the stirring in the spirit. And so at the same time now Mary's hearing from the angel and so after 400 years of nothing, it would be like there's a drought, 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 drought and then the damn wall breaks and all of a sudden there's a flood of God's activity on the earth again and this flood of God's activity is speaking about this one central issue which is that this child is coming and will be born and this child is going to be the Messiah that is in the line of David that is from the tribe of Judah that is of the lineage of Abraham he is the one this one is coming who's going to crush the serpent's head so then when we fast forward to Mark chapter 1 go with me there and we hear this the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Whatever comes next is really, really important. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Does that sound like Micah? Okay, And all the country of Judah and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing this and stop. Where were they being baptized? In Jordan. Which river did Israel have to cross to get into the promised land? Jordan. Where was Jesus baptized? 
Jordan, in Genesis, when the Spirit hovers over the waters, waters being a a symbol of chaos and disorder, the Spirit hovers over and brings order. When Jesus is in the waters, the Spirit hovers over the waters and brings order. One creation, whole new creation in Jesus. It's fire. uh, Jerusalem, we're going out to him. We're being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was closed with Hamilton and he was a crazy dude. And then he says this, after he come, after me, John the Baptist, comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, which days? These days when John the Baptist is preparing the way because he's the Elijah that we read about in Micah. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness. And then after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying this, listen carefully. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom, what have we been hearing? Kingdom, 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 kingdom. And the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the good news. The time you've been waiting for, the 400 years of silence is done. It's over. It's fulfilled. The anointed one, the snake crusher is here and the kingdom is established. When you're a first century Palestinian Jewish boy hearing this around the fire and all of a sudden the stories of your family start to stir in your mind, you are not thinking, I must pray a prayer so I can go to heaven one day when I die. That's not your thought. What you're thinking is there's a new reality, a new king, and we can now be free. Do you get it? If you get it, give me some amens, high fives, and some fire. Lots of hearts, lots of good things. So, how do we know what the people were thinking when Jesus pitches up? I know it is so good. And it's just the Bible. It's just the Bible. Here's what we know what people were thinking when Jesus pitches up. Uh, I'm going to take you to three quick texts and then we're really going to land. I know I've said that a hundred times. I'm sorry. I'm a preacher. That's what we do. John chapter 6. says this, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the snake crusher. He's arrived. Okay. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The people at the time were not expecting a disembodied, ethereal, spirit saving, uh, They were expecting an actual king who had an actual kingdom in the actual world. We see this again in uh, Mark chapter 10. The brothers come beside Jesus and they say, when you're in your kingdom, can we sit on your left and on your right? They're expecting an actual king with an actual kingdom in the actual world. And finally, we see this in the triumphal entry. When Jesus is riding into Jerusalem and they're laying down their coats and they're laying down their palm leaves. And what are they saying? Hosanna, save us, save us, save us. And they are are expecting an actual king with an actual kingdom in the actual world. And here's what I want to say. Jesus fully intended for them to expect that because that's exactly what he was coming to be. And when we think about the original expectation of the people, here is the, the language I want you to keep in your mind, that Jesus was not less than Messiah. He wasn't less than their messianic expectation, but he was more than it. Okay, so their messianic expectation is kind of base level. We've at least got to get our head around that. And then he takes that and he supersedes that. He goes far beyond that. But he doesn't throw out the moving pieces of what it means to be king with a kingdom in the world. He just reframes that in a powerful and beautiful way. How do we know that's true? Because he comes riding in on a donkey. Well, what does that mean, Matt? Zechariah 9 verse 9 says this, the coming king of Zion. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is 
coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The reason that Jesus went and got a donkey is not because there was no other horse around. It's because he knew what would be stirring in the minds of the people and he wanted to make a statement. He went and got a donkey because Zechariah declared that there would be a Messiah coming who would ride in on a donkey. And so he is sending a signal. He's saying, I am the Messiah you've been expecting. My kingdom is now and yet not yet. I'm not less than Messiah, but I am more than your expectation of what a Messiah is. And unless we understand that, we will never really understand why the gospel is good news. So that's our session for today. I know, I know it's been a lot. I know it's been a lot. The question I would leave you with right now is, first of all, these, this question here. Um, two questions. You can write them down and then reflect on them yourselves. Uh, Number one, if someone asked you to explain what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, how would you answer them now? How would you answer them now? If someone asked you to explain what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, how would you answer them now? And then number two, does this give you a greater appreciation for Jesus? Why or why not? Because guys, at the end of the day, that's the goal here. It's not to fill our minds with knowledge. This stuff is a window to his person. I think about Mary and Martha. Mary has chosen the one good thing that will not be taken away from her. We are to be people of encounter and presence. And so the goal of this information is not to fill up your head. The goal of this information is to set your heart on fire. All right, so at the end of this, my hope is that as you look through the lens of these ideas, you love Jesus more.